Chapter 18 Henry Venn, The Message It's no easy matter today to form a correct estimate of Henry Venn's gifts and character. In fact, the materials for forming it are very sparse. Venn was especially a man of one thing, absorbed in the direct work of his calling, always about his master's business, and he did so regardless of the verdict of posterity. He spent the greater part of his life in Yorkshire and Bedfordshire, in the days when the public press was in its infancy and there was not much communication between county and county. The only trustworthy biography of Henry Venn is a short account begun but not completed by his son, and finished by a grandson who never saw him. As an example of biography, Venn's life is beyond all praise, but it is still the work of a loving relative and not of a spectator. Under these circumstances, I feel unusual difficulty in handling the subject of this chapter. I cannot help thinking that the famous vicar of Huddersfield was a man who is hardly understood by the present generation. However, I must throw myself on the indulgence of my readers and listeners and do the best I can. There are two things that I propose to do in this chapter. I will first give some account of my hero as a preacher, a writer, and a correspondent. I will then point out certain prominent features in his character that appear to me of such rare beauty and excellence that they deserve the special notice of Christians. I presume to think we know next to nothing of what Venn was like as a preacher. His sermons that still survive, consisting of fourteen preached at Clapham before he moved to Huddersfield, and eight single sermons preached on various special occasions between 1758 and 1785, most certainly fail to give us any idea of his pulpit powers. Perhaps the best of them are his funeral sermons for Grimshaw and Whitefield. In doctrine, they are all undoubtedly sound, scriptural, and evangelical. However, it is useless to deny that they seem rather mild and commonplace as you read them today. There is nothing striking, brilliant, or powerful about them. There is nothing that appears likely to lay hold of people's minds or to grab and hold the attention. In short, you find it hard to believe that the man who preached these sermons could ever have been considered a great preacher. Preacher Yet it is clear as daylight that Henry Venn was a great preacher. The extraordinary effects that his sermons produced at Huddersfield, his undeniable popularity with congregations used to hearing such mighty orators as Whitefield, the high opinion of his abilities held by Lady Huntingdon and other good judges, all these are facts that cannot possibly be explained away. The vicar of Huddersfield may not have possessed the glowing eloquence of Rowlands or Whitefield, but he evidently was still a man of great pulpit powers. I believe that the truth of the matter is that Venn's sermons were precisely of that type that are excellent to hear, but not excellent to read. They are clear, satisfying, interesting, and instructive when listened to, but when written down they seem poor, ungrammatical, wordy, and ordinary. Whether people believe it or not, it is a fact that English for hearing and English for reading are almost two different languages. Speeches and sermons that sound admirable when you listen to them seem curiously flat and lifeless when you sit down to read them. Of all the illustrations of this principle in rhetoric, there was seldom a more remarkable one than then. To read his sermons over, there seems no more life or fire in them than there is in an empty stove in July. 
and yet the vicar of Huddersfield, by the universal testimony of all his contemporaries, was a mighty preacher. Let us add to all this that Venn's action and delivery, by all accounts, were exceptionally lively and powerful. The witness of his hearers at Huddersfield on this point was unanimous. His face, his voice, his hands, his eyes, his whole manner in preaching, grabbed attention and clothed all that he said with power. Who can deny the immense effect of good delivery? The ancients went so far as to call it the first, second, and third qualification of a good orator. Who can fail to see, from the traditional account already quoted, that then had a special gift of delivery? The sermons of a man who looked as if he would jump out of the pulpit may contain nothing that is original or remarkable, but they are just the sermons that often turn the world upside down. Printed sermons can show us a preacher's point, but they cannot show us his manner as delivered. As long as the world stands, second-rate material, if well delivered, will never fail to beat first-rate material badly delivered. After all, we must never forget that we know nothing of the nature of Venn's sermons in the days of his greatest power. They were extemporaneous sermons, or sermons preached from simple notes, and that fact alone speaks volumes. Not one of these sermons, I believe, was taken down shorthand, as most of Whitefield's were, and the consequence is that we have no idea what they were like. Every intelligent hearer of the present day knows well that a man can be a most powerful extemporaneous preacher who is a very dull and uninteresting writer. There are dozens of men whom it is very pleasant to hear, but very exhausting to read. Maybe, if we possessed good shorthand reports of some of Venn's best Huddersfield sermons, we would quickly see the secrets of his popularity as a preacher. As matters stand, I must honestly confess that it is a subject that is now wrapped in some obscurity. I have done my best to throw some speculative light upon it, and must leave it at that. I only want to remind my listeners, in moving on, that there are few things so little understood in the world as the true causes of pulpit power. Writer. As a writer, Venn's reputation rests almost entirely on two works, both of which are pretty well known The Complete Duty of Man and Mistakes in Religion. The first is a system of doctrinal and practical Christianity, and was intended to supply something better than that harmful and defective volume, The Whole Duty of Man. The second is a collection of essays on the prophecy of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist in which the errors of many common views of religion are faithfully and scripturally exposed. Besides these, Venn published two or three smaller pamphlets, which are little known. The two works, aforenamed, were undoubtedly very useful in their day, and are still to be found on the shelves of most collectors of religious literature. They are sound, scriptural, and evangelical, but I strongly suspect that they usually remain on the shelves on which they stand, and are books that most people know better by name than by reading. The plain truth is that every age has its own unique style of writing. As popular as the Spectator, the Tatler, and the Rambler were in their times, it may well be doubted whether they would be much read if published now. Even the pens of Joseph Addison, Samuel Johnson, and Richard Steele would not command success. The same remark applies to the sound and scriptural writings of Henry Venn. They did good service in their day, when people loved a somewhat stiff and classical style, and would have turned with disdain from
from any other kind of English composition as unworthy of an educated person. But like the jawbone of a donkey, which Samson once used so effectively, they are now laid aside. Their work is done. Like the famous longbows that our forefathers used at Cressy and Agincourt, we still view them with respect and are proud of the victories that they won, but we do not use them ourselves. Rifled artillery has taken their place. The design of our weapons is changed. After all, a close examination of Venn's two volumes will soon show an intelligent reader why they are no longer popular. The composition is of that stately and somewhat lofty style that was considered the standard of excellence in the eighteenth century. The sentences are often very long and somewhat involved. The words are frequently of Latin or French origin. There is a curious absence of that rich supply of ready, happy illustration that Whitefield and Rowlands had at their fingertips. The appeals to the imagination are few, and they come in stiffly and awkwardly when they do come, like men dressed in new or borrowed clothes. Basically, the style of the books is not simple, lively, exciting, concise, informal, or descriptive. We mustn't wonder that they are no longer popular. Let us thank God for them. They were read in their day and generation by hundreds of people who would probably have read no other evangelical literature. They can still do good to good men, and will be liked by those who are really hungering for spiritual food, but we must not insist on everybody admiring them or call people graceless because they do not take pleasure in reading them. We must not consider it strange if many call them heavy, dry, and cold. Letter Writer As a correspondent and letter writer, Henry Venn deserves the highest admiration. Nothing gives me such a high idea of his mental and spiritual stature as the collection of letters that accompanies his biography. I never wonder at his reputation when I read these letters. I consider them above all praise, and I commend them to the special attention of all who want to form a proper estimate of the seventh great evangelist of England in the eighteenth century. The true measure of the vicar of Huddersfield and Yelling is to be found in his letters much more than in his books or printed sermons. We mustn't forget that letter-writing was a much more important business in the eighteenth century than it is today. The daily newspaper was very different from what it is now. Periodicals and cheap publications had a very limited circulation. The result was that letters became most powerful instruments either for good or evil. Men of the world, like Lord Hervey, Lord Chesterfield, or Horace Walpole, were not ashamed to throw their whole minds into their correspondence. Religious men entered so fully into doctrinal, practical, and empirical questions with their correspondence that their letters were almost as useful as their sermons. John Newton's well-known volume of letters titled Cardiphonia has perhaps done as much good to Christ's cause as anything that ever came from his pen. In days like those, it's no little praise to say that Henry Venn was second to none as a letter-writer. Compare the letters that he wrote after settling down in Huntingdonshire with the very best that Newton published, and I dare say boldly that no impartial judge would hesitate to pronounce that the mine of letters at Yelling yielded quite as rich metal as that at Olney. It is curious, indeed, to observe how comparatively free Venn's letters are from the faults that hinder the usefulness of his books and printed sermons. 
there is a noticeable absence of that stiff and labored mode of expression to which I have already referred. He writes easily, naturally, and pleasantly, and makes you feel that you would like to hear again from such a correspondent. Like the letters of Mrs. Savage, Matthew Henry's sister, you cannot help regretting that the editor included such a small and limited selection from the stock he had in hand. After reading the letters, you have the impression that you would have liked it better if there had been twice as many letters included. My opinion is that the real key of Venn's popularity as a preacher is seen in Venn's published correspondence. I suspect that his extemporaneous sermons must have closely resembled his letters. These are my own personal thoughts, though, and nothing more. All I say is that if the vicar of Huddersfield preached in his pulpit in the same clear, concise, and direct manner that he wrote to his friends, I do not wonder that he was a preacher of mighty power. Again, I advise those who want to know the secret of Venn's reputation to study his letters. Character Now I want to point out what seemed to me to have been the prominent features in Henry Venn's character. I approach this subject with much hesitation. I have no other way of forming an opinion than a close examination of Venn's life and letters. I am very aware that I might err in my judgment, and might say too much on some points and too little on others, but after dwelling so much on this good man's life and ministry, I cannot help inviting the attention of my listeners to some characteristics that appear to me to stand out with particular brightness as we look at him from a distance. The first excellent quality that I notice in Venn's character is the soundness of his judgment on difficult and disputable points in theology. He lived in a day when the controversy between Calvinism and Arminianism was at its height, and when violent and exaggerated statements were continually made on both sides. In a day like this, he seems to me to have been remarkably happy in observing the proportion of truth in doctrine. I can put my finger on no leading minister of the eighteenth century whose views of the gospel appear to have been so truly scriptural and well balanced. Of course, he was alternately claimed as an ally or abused as an enemy by extreme partisans on both sides, but I can find no man of that era who seems to have understood so thoroughly the relative value of every part and portion of evangelical Christianity. Let's hear what he says on certain topics. Calvinism. As to Calvinism, you know, I am moderate. I rejoice in all those who exalt the Lord Jesus as all their salvation and diminish man. I wouldn't want them to advance further until they see more of the plan of sovereign grace, so connected with what is indisputable that they cannot refuse their assent. Difficulties, distressing difficulties, are on every side, whether we accept this system or not. We must be as little children. We must daily exercise ourselves in humble love and prayer. We must look up to our Saviour for the Holy Spirit. After we have done this for many years, we will find how much truth there is in that divine assertion, If any man thinks that he knows anything, yet as he ought to know, that man knows nothing. 1 Corinthians 8 2. I used to, to please myself fifteen years ago by thinking that by praying for the Holy Spirit and diligently reading the Word of God, I would be able to understand all Scripture and give it all one clear and consistent meaning. I am very sure that it is perfectly consistent, but it is not so to any mortal's apprehension here. We are so proud that we must have something to humble us, 
and this is one means to that end. February 15, 1772. Assurance. I believe that the knowledge of our acceptance with God is to be constantly urged as one of the greatest motives to lead a disciplined life, and to abstain from all appearance of evil, since the Holy Spirit, whose testimony alone can satisfy the conscience, will never dwell with the slothful or lukewarm, much less with presumptuous offenders. To state the knowledge of salvation scripturally, and to firmly maintain it by sound argument, is, I believe, a most useful way of preaching, guarding against hypocrites who will sometimes speak great swelling words about these matters, though they themselves are the servants of corruption, and are conscious of the lie they tell in speaking of their joy in the Lord. I judge that one great reason of the worldliness prevailing among orthodox dissenters is that their teachers do not emphasize this point, and that amid very much error, one great reason for Mr. Wesley's success some years ago was his urging Christians not to rest without joy in God from receiving the atonement. 1775. Holiness. True holiness is of quite another character than we, for a long time, in any degree, understand. It is not serving God without flaws, but with deep self-abasement, with amazement at His infinite condescension and love to sinners, to ungodly enemies, and to people who in their lost condition are exceedingly vile. It is pleasing to consider how we are all led into this point, no matter how much we might differ in others. If it were not for the demon of controversy and a hurry of employment that leaves no time for self-knowledge or devout meditation on the Word of God, I am persuaded that we would very soon be so grounded on this matter that bystanders would no longer reproach us for our divisions. 1776. Weak Faith Weak faith seeks salvation only in Christ. Weak faith produces submission to Him and brings the soul to His feet, even without assurance of being yet saved by Him. There's not one duty a weak believer ignores. Weak faith is attended with sorrow and humiliation, as in the case of the man who said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Mark 9, 24. It produces new desires and affections, new principles and purposes, and a new practice, though not in such strength and vigor as is found in old established believers. Ask the weakest and most disconsolate believer whether he would forsake and give up his hope in Christ, and he will eagerly reply, not for the whole world. There is therefore no reason why weak believers should conclude against themselves, for weak faith unites just as truly with Christ as strong faith. Just as the least bud in the vine draws sap and life from the root no less than the strongest branch. Weak believers, therefore, have abundant cause to be thankful, and while they reach after growth in grace, they should not overlook what they have already received. 1784. Indwelling sin. I sympathize with you in your troubles from the corruption of nature. I feel myself harassed with hardness of heart and coldness of affection toward God and man, and by lightly performing secret duties when I know so well that God is a rewarder only of those who diligently seek Him. Hebrews 11 6. How completely the estimate I made of myself thirty five years ago differs from what I know now to be my real condition. I then confidently expected to be holy very soon, even as Paul was. I thought that then there would be no other difference here between me and angels, 
than that I, by watching, fasting, and praying without ceasing, had conquered and eradicated sin which even they had never known. Now, when I compare myself with the great apostle, I can hardly perceive even a small feature or two of that which shines so prominently in that noble saint. 1787. The second excellent quality that I notice in Venn is his remarkable wisdom and good sense in offering advice to others about duties. This is a rare quality. I sometimes think it is almost easier to find a man of grace than a man of sense. How few are the people to whom we can turn for counsel on practical questions in religion and feel a confidence that they will advise us well? The vicar of Huddersfield appears to me to have possessed the spirit of counsel and of a sound mind in an eminent degree. His letters to Jonathan Scott, John Brazier, and Lady Mary Fitzgerald, containing directions for living a Christian life and a solution for doubts and fears, should be read in their entirety to be fully appreciated. They are so thoroughly good all the way through that it is not fair to quote from them. I know nothing in the English language that is relatively short that is as likely to be useful to those who are beginning a Christian life. His letter to a clergyman on the study of Hebrew and the value of translations of the Bible is a model of sensible advice, and it furnishes abundant proof that evangelical clergymen of the eighteenth century were not, as their enemies often insinuated, unlearned and ignorant men. Acts 4.13 Last but not least, his letters to his son and other clergymen on the ministerial office and its duties and trials, and the mistakes of young ministers, are a storehouse of Christian wisdom that will abundantly reward examination. Indeed, there are few books that I would so strongly recommend to the attention of young clergymen as Venn's Life and Letters. The truth is that the whole volume is full of strong Christian good sense, and it is difficult in giving selections from it to know where to begin and where to stop. The following quotations must suffice. To a friend at Huddersfield, he says in 1763, The first thing I would press upon you is to beg of God more light. There is not a more false saying, though it is common in almost every mouth, that people know enough and should only practice better. On the contrary, God says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Hosea 4, 6. At first, people live in sin, content and well pleased, because they do not know what they do. Then, after they are alive and awake, they do little for God and gain little victory over sin because of the ignorance that is in them. They have no comfort, no foundation, and no certainty that they are in the right path, even when they are going to God, because the eyes of their understanding are so little enlightened to discern the things that make for their peace. In all your prayers, therefore, call much upon God for divine teaching. To a rich widow residing in London, he said, In the day when the eternal state of man is determined, the greater part of those that are lost will perish, not through any glaring and scandalous iniquity, but through a deadness to God and His love, an ignorance of their own sinfulness, and, in consequence of that, through reigning pride and self-sufficiency. The one great source of all this miserable disorder or at least that by which it is maintained and strengthened, is keeping much company with those whom the Scripture marks out 
as engaged in talk without sense. Company not with near relatives or chosen friends, not with those for whom we have any real regard, but with those who come to see us and we go to see them only because the providence of God has brought us into the same town. It is this that devours infinitely precious time and occupies us in mere emptiness when we otherwise should be drawing near to God and growing rich in divine knowledge and grace. We are naturally such slaves to the love of esteem and are so eagerly desirous of having everyone's good word that we are content to go on in the circle of fashionable foolishness while our hearts condemn us and a secret voice whispers, This manner of spending time can never be right. To the same lady, he said, You certainly judge right not to restrain your son from games, cards, etc., since a mother will never be judged by a son of his age capable of deciding for him. And possibly, after your most strict admonitions to stop such sinful vanities, he would be tempted even to violate your authority. The duty you are called by God to exercise now is to bear the cross borne at different times and in different degrees by all the disciples of a crucified Saviour. It's true that it is painful to see one's dear child love pleasure more than God. It is painful to see a young creature, born for communion with God and acquaintance with heavenly joys, attached to meaningless gratifications and the objects of sense alone. But such are we. God saved us by His mercy and sounded an alarm in our souls, or we would have been such people to this hour. He expects, then, that your experience should teach you to wait for patience until divine mercy apprehends Him also. From the whole, you see, you are to learn two most important lessons from the painful situation you remain in with regard to your son. The one lesson is to realize your own weakness and inability to give a single ray of spiritual light, or to excite the slightest conviction of sin, or to communicate the least particle of spiritual good to one who is dearer to you than life. This should take away every proud thought of our own sufficiency and keep us earnest and persistent petitioners at the door of almighty mercy and free grace. The other lesson is that your own conversion and reception of the Lord Jesus Christ as your portion and righteousness should be marvelous in your eyes. You have many kind thoughts and the highest esteem for me, for which I desire to retain a dear sense in my mind. But you know I am merely a voice that said, Behold the Lamb of God. The third excellent quality that I notice in Venn's character is his exceptional prudence and tenderness in the management of his children. Few ministers, perhaps, have ever been more successful than he was in the education and training of his family. Few, perhaps, ever trained their sons and daughters with such tireless efforts, diligence, affection, watchfulness, and prayer. The families of pious ministers like the sons of Samuel and David have often brought discredit on their father's house, or, like the children of Moses, they have not been in any way remarkable. The family of Henry Venn forms a bright exception. All of them turned out well. All became Christians of no common degree, and all gladdened their father's heart in his old age. It would be impossible, in the narrow limits of this work, to give any adequate idea of Venn's dealing with his children. Those who have an interest in the subject and would like to know a most successful parent's method 
of communication with his children, would do well to study the hundred pages of letters to his children that can be found in the volume of his life and letters. Rarely indeed does a father succeed in uniting faithfulness, spirituality, and deep familiar affection so completely in his correspondence with sons and daughters as Henry Venn did. I can only find room for three examples. To his daughter Catherine, he says in 1781, writing on the proper observance of the Sabbath, When I was your age, I was, sadly, a mere pretender to Christianity. Although I constantly went to the house of God on the Lord's day, I didn't see the glory of the Lord. I didn't understand His word. I didn't hear it when it was read. I asked for nothing. I was so foolish and ignorant that I thought I needed nothing for my soul. I was glad when the worship was over and the day was over so that my mouth could pour out foolishness and I could return to my sports and amusements. Oh, what a wicked stupidity of soul! I am astonished how God could bear with me. If He had said to me, I promise that you will never ascend into the hill of the Lord, nor see my face, who find it such a weariness to be at church, and are so proud and profane in spirit, dwell forever with those whom you are like, dwell with the devil and his angels, and with all who have departed this life enemies to my name and glory. Oh, if the Lord had said that to me in displeasure, I would have received the due reward of my deeds. But adore him for his love to your father. In this state he opened my eyes and captivated my heart, and allowed me to seek him and his strength and face, and to join all his saints who keep his day holy. I was glad to hear them say, Come, and let us go up to the house of the Lord. Psalm 122, 1, Isaiah 2, 3. Even more than this, he gave me your blessed mother for a companion, who exceedingly loved the house and day of the Lord, and he restored to you and me her loss by giving me another of his dear children who sanctifies each Sabbath with delight and reverences God's house with her whole heart. Thus, instead of casting me into hell, he has made me the father of one dear saint in glory and of four more, all of whom I trust fear and love the God of their father and mother, and all of whom I have a lively hope I will meet in the courts above. To his daughter Jane, he writes in 1785, A great part of our warfare is to overcome our natural tendency to seek happiness in food and drink, in clothing and entertainment, which only nourish our disease and keep us from communion with God as our main good. More than thirty-seven years ago, he was pleased, in his precious mercy, to give me a demonstration that everything except himself was vanity and vexation of spirit. Ecclesiastes 1.14 From that hour, such is the energy of divine teaching, rising up and lying down, going out and coming in, I have felt this truth. I began and continued to seek the Lord and His strength and His face evermore. I was then led to know how the poverty and emptiness of all earthly good could be well supplied from the fullness of a precious Jesus. Oh, how unspeakably blessed I am that I see my children impressed with the same precious and invaluable feelings, and that I hope upon the best grounds that we will enjoy an eternity together in glory, where you will know your Father, not the poor, polluted, impatient, sinful creature he now is, but holy, without spot, 
wrinkle, or any such thing. Ephesians 5.27 Then I will know, my dear children, not as emerging from a sea of corruption, struggling against the law of sin in their members, Romans 7.23, and needing frequent reminders to do what is right, but when naturally and continually everything within and without will be perfectly holy. Oh, what a meeting that will be, when all my prayers for your precious souls ever since you were born, when all my poor yet well-meant instructions and lessons from God's Word and all your own prayers will be fully answered, and we will dwell together in a perfect union. To his son John, on his appointment to the parish of Clapham, he writes in 1792, The old adage says that children are careful comforts. I find the truth of this now, especially regarding you. I was careful to see you called out to usefulness, and now providentially a great door is found. I am in daily concern lest you should be hurt and suffer loss in your new position. You must beware of company. You must be much in secret and separation. Visiting friends and being seldom in a solemn spirit before the throne of grace ruin most of those who perish among professors of godliness. The following facts, told to me by a connection of Henry Venn's, are in themselves so deeply interesting and throw so much light on his method of dealing with little children that I make no apology for introducing them here. It appears that one of his daughters married a widower with a family of young children. These motherless little ones excited a strong interest in his heart, and he took one of them, only three years old, to his home at Yelling and began to train the child for God. My correspondent says, The first thing he found out was that the poor child was afraid of the dark. That very evening Mr. Venn took him by the hand and led him into his study where the shutters were already closed. He placed the boy on his knee, put his arm close around him, and told the fearful boy so wonderful a story out of God's book as to make the child forget everything else. He repeated this day by day until the evening story came to be excitedly expected. You will sit by my side today, John, and hold my hands while you hear a new Bible story, said the venerable man after many stories had been told on the knee. And tomorrow you will sit by me without holding my hands, will you not? Once this point was reached, a seat at a little distance was chosen, still in the dark, then one opposite, then one at the furthest end of the study, until, before the end of winter, my father had completely forgotten his fears of the dark, nor did they at any period of his life ever return to him. The advice given by this more-than-grandfather to the child when he left yelling for school was often quoted, and though for a time he threw off the restraints of religion and sought happiness in the world, the closing words of his venerable friend were never forgotten, and later in his life they were repeated to his children and grandchildren dozens, if not hundreds of times. Remember, little John, if anything could make heaven not heaven to me, it would be not having you with me there. God's blessing did follow that Christian teaching, and after a long life spent first in actively doing and then in suffering, his father's will, that little John rejoined his loved an honored teacher in the skies, frequently saying, When I get to heaven, how I will bless God for the early lesson of dear old Henry Venn. The fourth excellent quality that I notice in Henry Venn is his remarkable unworldliness and cheerfulness of spirit. He had his share of worldly trials, and these too of all types and descriptions. 
Sickness and severe bodily trials. The loss of his wife in the middle of his abundant labors at Huddersfield. Difficult circumstances arising out of the extreme meagerness of his professional income. All these things broke in upon him from time to time and severely tried his faith. However, he seems to have been wonderfully strengthened throughout all his troubles. He maintained a cheerful frame of mind under every cross and trial, and he was always able to see blue sky even in the gloomiest day. His very portrait gives one the impression of a happy Christian. As we look at it, we can well understand the story that on more than one occasion he was asked to preach by clergymen who didn't know him under the impression that he was a light-hearted minister of the old school and not a Methodist preacher. They judged him by his smiling face and could not imagine that the man who had such a countenance could be the friend of Whitefield, Berridge, and Wesley. Fascinating indeed is the lesson that the incident contains. It would be good for the Church of Christ if all preachers of the gospel were more careful to exemplify their principles by their disposition, and to show by their demeanor that their master's service is truly happy. One single example from his correspondence will be enough to show the vicar of Huddersfield's unworthy spirit. He heard that a lady who knew and valued him had made a will, leaving him a large sum of money. He at once wrote her a letter, positively declining to accept it, of which the following extract is a part. I understand your most kind and generous intention toward me in your will. The legacy would be exceedingly acceptable and I can assure you the person from whom it would come would greatly enhance the benefit. I love my sweet children as much as is possible, and as I know it would give you pleasure to administer to the comfort of me and mine, I should with greater joy accept of your generosity. But an insurmountable obstacle stands in the way. The love of him to whom we are both indebted, not for a fleeting benefit, for silver or gold, but for an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. 1 Peter 1 4. His honor, his cause, is and must be dearer to his people than wife, children, or life itself. It is the pious resolve of his saints, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Philippians 3 8. To be, therefore, a stumbling block in the way of any who are seeking him, to give the slightest encouragement to any who would gladly bring his followers into contempt, would grieve me while in health, darken my mind in sickness, and load me with self-condemnation on my deathbed. After the most complete deliberation, therefore, it is our request that you will not leave us any other token of your regard than something of little value. The last excellent quality that I note in Henry Venn is his extraordinary openness and kindness of spirit and his readiness to love and honor his brethren. Sadly, jealousy among Christian ministers is very common. Nowhere possibly will you find men so slow to recognize the gifts of others and so quick to point out their faults as in the ranks of preachers of religion. Of all the men of the eighteenth century who attained outstanding usefulness, I find none so free from jealousy as Henry Venn. He seems to delight in speaking well of his fellow laborers and to rejoice in their gifts and success. It would take up too much room to quote all the expressions he uses about his contemporaries. 
let it suffice to say that I find in his life repeated kind words about Whitefield, Wesley, Grimshaw, Romaine, Walker, Conyers, Hervey, Howell Harris, Berridge, John Fletcher, Robinson, Newton, Adams, Cecil, Scott, and Abraham Booth the Baptist. That list alone is enough to show the breadth and warmth of Venn's heart. To suppose that he agreed with all these good men in all things is simply unreasonable, but he had a quick eye to see grace, and a ready mind to acknowledge and admire it. It would be good for the Church of Christ if all ministers were more of his attitude and spirit in this matter. Envy and jealousy are too often the greatest stains on the character of great men. It only remains for me now to conclude my account of Henry Venn by quoting the language used about him by three good judges, though very different men. Let us hear what William Cowper the poet thought of him. In a letter to John Newton, written in 1791, he says, I am sorry that Mr. Venn's labors below are so near to completion. I have seen few men whom I could have loved more if opportunity had been given me to know him better. At least that is what I have thought every time I have seen him. Let us hear what Charles Simeon of Cambridge thought of him. I most gladly bear my testimony that not the half nor even the hundredth part of what might have been rightly said of that blessed man of God has been spoken. If any person now living, except his children, is qualified to bear this testimony, it is I. From my first entrance into ministry to his dying hour, I had most intimate access to him and enjoyed most of his company and conversation. How great a blessing his conversation and example have been to me will never be known until the day of judgment. I dislike the language of eulogy, and therefore resist the temptation to elaborate on a character whom, in my estimation, was above all praise. Seldom ever did I visit him when he did not pray with me, whether at noonday or at common seasons of family worship. Seldom ever did I eat with him when his passion in returning thanks, sometimes in an appropriate hymn, sometimes in prayer, did not inflame the souls of all present. In all the twenty-four years that I knew him, I never remember him to have spoken unkindly of anyone, except once, and then I was struck with the humiliation he expressed for it in prayer the next day. Lastly, let us hear what Sir James Stephen thought of Henry Venn. In his Essays on Ecclesiastical Biography, amid some things I cannot subscribe to, he concludes his account of the vicar of Huddersfield and Yelling with the following passage. With a well-stored memory, he was an independent, if not an original thinker. With deep and even fervent affection, he knew how to maintain on proper occasions, even to those he loved most, a principled urgency, and even an authoritative sternness. He acted with untiring energy in a multitude of people, yet in solitude could meditate with unwearied perseverance. He was at the same time a preacher at whose voice multitudes wept and trembled, and also a companion to whose privacy the wise resorted for instruction, the miserable for comfort, and all for sympathy. In all circumstances and in all relations of life, the firmest reliance could always be placed on his counsel, his support, and his example. Like Paul, he became all things to all men, and for the same reason that he might by any means save some. 1 Corinthians 9.22. This was the last of the seven great spiritual heroes of the eighteenth century. 
I have dwelt long on Henry Venn's history, but I feel that he deserves it. He was not the commanding preacher that Whitefield and Rowlands were. He did not possess the polish of Romaine or the originality of Grimshaw or Berridge. But all in all, Henry Venn was a great man.